0: As a liturgy, um, not the greatest workshop title for drawing a crowd, I get that, uh, so I appreciate you being here today, um, but it is, it is deliberate because it's obviously a word that uh, we think we know what it means and we, we, we probably do know what it means, but it's also maybe a word that, we have that has a stigma attached to it, you know, where it's like, ah, oh, I don't know about that, we, we are not, because, and for many of us, I get this, for many of us, liturgy brings back bad memories of being forced to go to church and forced to say things you don't know why you're saying and why you're standing and why you're sitting and why you're acting things out. I mean, it's like being forced to do, you know, an improv skit. And you're like, I don't really want to do this, you know? Um, And so so, uh, very often people say things like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Liturgy, you you mean dead rituals, you know? Like, oh, you mean that, that dead, dry stuff? Like, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that. And I, I, I do get that. You know, liturgy um, has earned that reputation in some ways because truly, in, in many places, um, too much stock was put in the ritual. Okay? So, so we, kind of, we, we, we kind of went from saying, look, if you just do these things, if you just say these things, it's going to work on its own power. It has its own power. And then there was this movement within the church that said, you know what, I don't know that it just has its own power, because I grew up in it, and I don't understand it. I never heard the gospel preached. It's always stunning to me when people say that, when they have come from traditional churches. I grew up Lutheran, and I never heard the gospel. The gospel is in the liturgy, but what is it that makes them stop hearing it? So that's the question, isn't it, right? So, so then we kind of swing the other way and we're like, man, we just need to make sure that, we, that everybody can understand this and they can get it, and I, I think that's really important. But I want, to, I want to start from even kind of a wider angle lens than that. What is a liturgy? In the very simple sense, it is the work of the people. And you've probably heard this. It's what the word means, liturgy, liturgia, the thing that we sort of build together. In a secular Greek sense, uh, it's like a community project, a service project, uh, a, a bridge that we build together. It's you know, a thing that we build together. But I think when we set this word within um, the Christian context, we have to be more careful because we don't just want to say that the liturgy is the work of the people. Because what, what can that sound like? That can sound like we do something for God, right? And that can feel like legalism. or well, that can degenerate into legalism. And, that, and legalism is actually dead religion. <laughs> like, and, and, and while we're at it, let's just say there's many kinds of legalism, right? There's charismatic legalism. There, so, so whenever we slide into thinking that what we do makes God do something we've slipped into a different place than what the gospel says. So I like, I like kind of saying this. The liturgy is a servant of the Spirit, but the Spirit's work is really to reveal Christ. So in a sense, a good liturgy is rooted in the gospel, flexible to the Spirit, and ultimately reveals Jesus. That's ultimately the point, isn't it? I mean, look, a good liturgy is rooted in the gospel it's flexible to the spirit. the spirit, And I, I'll say some of this in the Thursday uh, morning general session. And, and, and ultimately, in the end, reveals Jesus. So if, if, if you walk away from church or people walk away from the Sunday gathering and they say, I saw Jesus today. The liturgy that you're putting together is working. <laughs> if they walk away and they're saying something else or they're leaving with another taste in their mouth, It it may be time to reevaluate that. Say, wait a minute, how are we crafting this? So, so that's we start by kind of saying that. But if we were to zoom out even more, we would say something else. We would say that actually, liturgies. This is this is a like million dollar sentence. Okay, so this is a sentence that you're going to write down and come back to for weeks and think, what does that mean? Liturgies are ritual practices that function as pedagogies of ultimate desire, huh? Okay, let's take this piece by piece. Ritual practices, just the thing that you repeatedly do, okay? I think kind of implied here is that it's a communal ritual, not just an individual ritual like brushing your teeth, okay? Think of this as like family game night, We do Friday night game night, or we do, you know, um, Sunday afternoon football, whatever. It's this ritual practice, okay? Functions as pedagogy. Well, what is a pedagogy? Pedagogy is something that teaches, right? Something that teaches you, something that trains you of ultimate desire. Something that shapes ultimate desire. James K.A. Smith is a philosophy professor at Calvin College. If you're interested in kind of diving deeper into that thesis statement, really. <laughs> you, you could read his book, Desiring the Kingdom. It's, it's really all about this. And what Smith is doing, just some of you are nerds like me and you'll care. Um, what Smith is doing is he's working with an Augustine principle, something from St. Augustine, where Augustine believed that inherently the thing that, <laughs> that makes us work is the way we love and the way that we desire. And so sin is not just that you desire bad things, but sin is that we sometimes desire good things in the wrong ways. And so salvation, God's saving work, is not simply to say stop doing this and start doing this, but is God realigning our desires. And salvation is God saying, you're loving, but you're loving the world more than me. Or you're loving, but you're, lov- you're, you're hoping for this to be the source when it's not the source and all this, right? So, so Augustine would say that part of the redemptive work in us is to shape our desires, to shape our loves. And actually, that's a pretty good way to expound on what Jesus said. <laughs> that It all comes down to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, that if your loves are properly ordered and shaped, you're doing well. That's it. And, and, and so, what Smith is doing with, with another, with other sort of um, um, disciplines introduced in the conversation, is trying to say, Well, what teaches us how to love correctly? What shapes our love? Liturgies, ritual practices teach us how to love to love. Liturgies shape our loves. Liturgies teach us how to love. Now, when you think about this, I'll leave that up there for a bit. When you think about this, it, it, it kind of flies in the face of what we have been trained to think as Westerners. Uh, And I can say Westerner, even though I grew up in Malaysia, because we were a British colony. And so our educational system was absolutely Western. And then I moved to the States at 10, you know, and then back again at 17. So I'm shaped by Western pedagogy, Western education. And what we believe as Westerners is that if you can change a person's mind, you can change everything. And that is the leftover thinking of the enlightenment. So the enlightenment era kind of said, look, human reason, reason is the thing that we we privilege above everything else that a human is. And if you can get their reasoning correct, then you've got them. Accept that. We don't always make decisions that match our rationale, do we? We don't. It's the reason why you eat ice cream at midnight. You know it's going to make you fat and give you heartburn. I don't care. My loves are for chocolate chip cookie dough, right? Come on somebody, let's go get ice cream after this workshop, right? And and I don't know how my love was shaped for, for ice cream, but probably when I was a kid, every time I did something good or we did something fun, I got ice cream. So that reinforced my already natural desire for ice cream. And so now if I've had a tough week, I'm going to buy a bucket of bluebell, you know, whatever, Rocky something, you know. Anyway, you get the point. We are more than rational creatures. We do things that don't match up with our reasoning because something else has formed us. Something else is driving us. Why do you think we have all these Hollywood movies that are trying to show us how irrational love is? I know this is not the right person for me, but I just can't help. You know? And of course, the fully secularized version of Augustine is that you can't help what you love. Augustine would say, actually, you can, and that's precisely what salvation has come to fix, is to help you love correctly. But the secularized version is to say, I just can't help it. Yes, I do whatever I love, and, and I can't help what I love. That's the secularized version of Augustine. Didn't know that, you know, love, the movie Love Actually was actually a critique of St. Augustine's theology of desire, but there you go, right? <laughs> um, so, anyway, uh, um, so we, we think that we are purely rational beings and that we always do what we think makes sense. So that's not true, that's one. But the other thing we think about our, 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 our um, reason, the role of cog- cognition, is that we learn by rationality. In other words, the only way we learn... Now, look at our format. Look at what we're doing. We're sitting down, and you're listening to someone with words out of his mouth and words on a screen, and you're writing down these words, and you're going to read these words because we are convinced that the only way to learn is by words, logic, engaging the mind. Now, I don't deny that that's how we learn. It's certainly how I learn. I I imagine we all learn a little bit differently. I think there's a lot of research on all that beyond my scope. But we actually also learn by just repeatedly doing something. Okay, so here's an example. My wife is from Iowa. And uh, we've been married 13 years. She's from a small town in the northwest corner of Iowa. And a couple summers ago, we were home. We have four kids. And we were at her parents' place. And um, our second child, so we have a girl, girl, boy, girl. And our second child um, came down with a fever. And so, you know, when you're on vacation, it's like, oh, my goodness. And she was, at the time, she's probably five or six, you know, like, oh, we, we've got to get her some children's Motrin or whatever. And, oh, we forgot to pack it this time because you always, you know, forget something. And, and I said, I'll, I'll go to the pharma- pharmacy and, and, and get some. And uh, I said, honey, where, the the drugstore, it's on Main Street, right? She's like, oh, yeah, it's on Main Street. And um, I'm I'm about to leave, you know, get my keys, shoes, wallet, and my mother-in-law, she's like, oh, you're going to go to the drugstore, Glenn? I'm like, yep, she's Main Street, right? Yep, Main Street, I got it. I'll I'll look for it. And uh, I could see it in my mind. Um, But I have a terrible sense of direction, so I really rely on words like street names, You can see where this is going. I'm pulling out of the driveway and I see my father-in-law doing his chores on the farm. And and I was like, Bill, pharmacy's on Main Street, right? Main Street. Okay, it's three people now have told me the pharmacy is on Main Street, drugstores on Main Street. So I drive into town, it's just, you know, maybe a couple miles down the dirt road, into town. It's a town where there's no stoplight. There's just one blinking light, you know, flashing light. And um, and I can picture. What the street is that I'm looking for? But as I'm driving into town, I see a street that is named Main Street. I'm like, well, they said it's on Main Street, so I turn on Main Street. I'm looking around, I'm like house, 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 house. So it's a row of houses. I'm like, this is wrong. So, and I have my cell phone, but as you might suspect, it did not work. It doesn't really work out in the farm. And uh, I just thought, okay, I just got to figure this, this out. So I'm driving through the grid of the little town, and finally I find it. I'm like, that's the street. That's the drugstore. It was on Reed Street. Okay, so I'm thinking, okay, I'm not upset, but I'm going to make sure I tell them when I get back. This was like, so we drive back, and uh, I drive back, and I say, oh, yeah, I got this stuff. By the way, the drugstore is not on Main Street. And they all just kind of looked at me like, Oh, Reed, Reed. I was like, yeah, Reed Street. They didn't even know the name. Okay. They learned their town not by studying a map. They learned their town by driving it, by walking it, by riding their bikes, by where grandma's house was. They, they, learned, their, they learned where the drugstore was because it's next to the library, which is across from that fried chicken pizza ranch place that we always get. You know? they, they, that's how they learned their town, by living in it. By repeatedly doing what... So, Main Street was the street that the community, by its own rituals and practices, decided was the Main Street. didn't matter what it was called. Everybody in town decided, this is the Main Street. That's where the two banks are and the two Lutheran churches. This is Main Street, okay? Even though it's called Reed Street. What am I saying with all this? I'm saying that people learn their theology not by the list that we give them to memorize, but by what we do together. You say you believe that, pray, that, you believe in prayer, but if you never pray before you do anything, people are going to learn not to pray. You say, well, I, I really, you know, I mean, I think it's, um, I don't know. There's so many examples, but they're all going to sound like cynical, and I don't want to be cynical. But people are going to learn their theology by what we repeatedly do together. Regardless of what you tell them. You know, I mean, think about this. Do people in your church know where the statement of faith is? Somewhere on the website, right? It's so like about us, who we are. I mean, I don't know. How do they know what kind of church you are? By what you do every Sunday. We're a church that believes in worship. It doesn't say it anywhere on our website, but I, when we repeatedly get together, we always give like 30 minutes to, to worship. Like, I, th- I think we really believe that God meets us there. Okay. This is how we learn What to believe, and actually, that notion of being shaped that way is one that um, was uh, not—do I have it? There it is. Was not a mystery to the church fathers. So here's some Latin for you, just some stuff to file away for your fun, like your next uh, staff party or volunteer party. You know, you can just bust out in some Latin. Everyone will be impressed. Lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. How we pray becomes how we believe. How we believe becomes how we live. I mean, it's actually more uh, connected than that. The way we pray is the way we believe is the way we live, okay? So, lex is the Latin for law or rule. But in this sense, rule is not like the law of the king, but rule as in the order, okay? Um, uh, I'm trying to think of this, like um, in the old sense of the word rule, you know, like the um, the Benedict's Rule, the Rule of Life. The idea is an order, a pattern. That's what I'm looking for, a pattern. So when so this word lex is really like the pattern of prayer, the way you pray. Lex credendi, belief or faith. Vivendi, life. So the pattern of prayer is the pattern of faith is the pattern of life. The way you pray is the way you... okay Now, if we were to expand this out and use a word that all of us would would say this is what Sundays kind of uh, 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 contain, is the word worship. The way we worship together is the way we believe and ultimately is the way we live. It's right there. It all shapes it. And now you have a fancy, snazzy Latin phrase that you can use. Um, so, is there a problem? Hmm. <laughs> Worship in many churches has been translated into the language of culture. That's not a bad thing. Actually, I think that's a really good thing. And perhaps one of the critiques we might give of old liturgies is that they never, they, they, at some point, they stopped translating. I mean, even if you think about the Reformation, um, one of the great moves of the Reformation was to put worship in the language of the people. Even the Catholic Church eventually caught up and said, Let's stop using the Latin Mass. Let's do English, right? So, so but at some point we stopped translating and we stopped using the language of, of culture. So, so that's a good thing. Where does it become different, difficult? When we adopt the liturgies of culture. I don't understand. What what what's a what is a liturgy of culture? Well, what did we learn that liturgy is? Oh, yeah, it's that ritual practice that shapes our love, okay? And, 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 and culture, does culture really have liturgies? You bet. Let's think about a few of them, all right? You ready for some fun? Here's one cultural liturgy. I have a friend who has season tickets to the Broncos games. I love that, and I love my friend, because he takes me every year to at least one game. And we've been going for many, many years now that his seats have gotten better. And we, we, the first game I ever went with, uh, to him with, we were up in the nosebleeds, you know, watching the Raiders. And I think Brian Greasy was our quarterback. Uh, now, you know, we went to some Jake Plummer games. And now here we, we did we go to a Tebow game? I'm sure we did. Uh, and, uh, and, and now his seats are way down on, like, the 15th row, north end zone. I'm like, yes, I love my friend even more now. You know, no, no, just kidding. But there are rituals that go along with this, right? We know where, we have our parking spot. We have the KFC bucket of chicken, which we eat one time a year because we pay for it afterwards. But we have this thing that we do. And we, we have, the, we buy the bucket of chicken and mashed potatoes. We go into the stadium. And, and, and then it's not just that we, as a, as a group of friends, have our rituals. The whole stadium has a few rituals they do together, right? What's an example of it? You stand until, until um, no, 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 that's the Nuggets. You, you stand, let's see, the Nuggets stand until the first shot is made, right? Yeah. The Broncos, uh, yeah, whenever there's an incomplete pass, the whole stadium chants, In, come, please, it's a communal ritual. We know this. There's also more subliminal communal rituals, like when you're on offense and Peyton Manning's your quarterback, you sit down and be quiet. Shh. And if you're not, you'll do this. Wings of the condor, you know, like, shh. And, if, if, and then when you're on defense, you stand. And if it's third down, you don't just stand. You yell and you stamp your feet. I mean, everybody knows these communal rituals. And to the point where if someone is, like, standing up at the wrong time, you're going to get yelled at. <laughs> hey, down in front, right? Or if, you, or if you're, like, talking to your friends and you're socializing, you're treating it like a baseball game. Like, dude, get out of here. Like, this isn't the fourth inning, you know. Like, this isn't the Rockies. Like, we, we're here. Again, there's liturgies in this culture that shape our love. How about this one? It's a rock concert. Um, there are certain liturgies that go along with this. Give me some examples. Lighters, moshing, What else? All the lights are dim except the stage. There's usually one central figure. Smoke machine, there's usually one central figure that everybody's fixated on. Maybe a lot of times that figure will make a grand entrance, right? There's a script to this, right? Okay. How about this? Oops, meant to delete that one. Okay. Um, What's this one? Shopping. I love how James Smith talks about this. You know, he says, he says um, there's this great cathedral <laughs> that we enter into. I mean, it almost looks like a cathedral, doesn't it? It's like the gabled roof, right, or whatever that's called, the dome, right? You walk in, it, it lifts your eyes up right away. You look to the left, and there's a, there's a row of prayer chapels. You look to your right, there's a whole other set of, of prayer chapels. You go into one of the prayer chapels. There's an icon of a saint on the window of that prayer chapel modeling the outfit, the life that you want. I mean, that's like iconography, is it not? When you see a model wearing clothes, you think, that is me. I am so whatever, you know. You find the chapel that has the saint that resonates with you. You enter the chapel, you browse for the relic, that will bring you the same power. (laughs) Come on, you feel it, right? And then you find it, the producer pant from Express. This will make me look classy without being nerdy. No pleats, whatever. You find the relic, you go to the altar, you bring your offering. Give your gift. Receive the relic and the power to live out as the saint, the patron saint of J. Crew has shown us how to live. Hallelujah. Right? I mean, right? I mean This is I mean if you want to tell me that's not a liturgy, that is a liturgy. They even have liturgical seasons. We're in, we're in one. You're gonna see fall. Ooh, I do need a new sweater. Liturgical seasons that call us to new sacrificial giving. <laughs> I mean, think of it. It's, it's all there. They're not marking it by holy events. They're marking it to shape your love for that new thing. Apple does this better than anybody. Oh, Anyway, you get it. So if we were to summarize it, sporting events... How do they shape us? How does that cultural liturgy shape us? It shapes us into fans. Concerts shape us into an audience. Shopping mall shapes us into, oops, consumers. Oh, now I've got to do that again. Shopping mall shapes us into consumers. Now, I want to stop for a minute. Because what this means, what I'm saying is, you don't adopt a, liturg- a cultural liturgy into church without there being consequences. There are consequences. And consequences sounds like a bad word. There are implications. There are things that happen as a result. Man, how, why are my people just like consumers all the time? Why do they just, part of it, no doubt, part of it, no doubt, is our culture all around us is constantly shaping us to think and act like consumers. No doubt about it. But if we don't do anything to subvert that, then we're only reinforcing it. And I'm not saying you got to be mean and grumpy and you can't have nice visitors or or coffee available in the lobby. I'm not saying any of that. We have a cafe here at the main cafe. But there's a a difference, isn't there? Being downtown, we started New Life downtown for two and a half years. One of the great challenges, as you might guess, is parking, right? Where where are we going to park? And for the first few months, I was always apologetic about it. I was like, man, every Sunday I would get up and say, hope it was okay, hope you were able to find parking, I'm sorry if you had to walk, you know. And someone came up to me and he said, Glenn, stop apologizing for an inconvenience of having to park three blocks away. Like, Can you change it? No. So why are you apologizing? All you're doing is reinforcing that we are consumers of a religious product. He didn't quite say it that eloquently, but that's what he was saying. <laughs> Uh, I may be putting a few words in his mouth, but that's, but that's more or less what he was saying. He did say, stop apologizing for that, you know? And I think there is wisdom to that, isn't it? Now, it's one thing if you're apologizing for something that you can change, like we need to add more nursery classrooms, blah, 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 right? But, but it's another thing when you say, oh, I, I, you expect to come in and that everything's gonna be taken care of for you, but we can't. So what do you wanna do about it? Wanna Help? Want to be a parking uh, attendant, you know? Uh, no, I wasn't thinking that, and I just was, right? I mean, so, so there's all those things. Now, I was telling John Egan about this this morning. I thought John and the team brilliantly subverted the rock concert liturgy this morning. And here's, here's how, okay? So one of the best things that artists do is you take an existing form, and then you mess with it. Right? You take an existing genre and then you, you mess with it. I mean, think about your favorite movies. They're, they're like, it's like, yeah, it fits that epic movie, but, man, there was this little other piece that, that's not normally there. Now, that's why I loved it. Okay? The reason, uh, my favorite romantic comedy of all time, You've Got Mail. Just the best. Right? The best. I'll watch that movie any day when I'm sick. And I don't know if it breaks the stereotypes or conforms to it. I'm not a film critic, but I think there are enough things about it that you're like, man, that, I see what they're doing. You you took an existing form and you're you're playing with it, okay? We know what the existing form is of the rock concert liturgy. You you named some of the things. Now let me name some of the ways that that John subverted it without even realizing he was subverting it. Did you notice that there were six people all, all lined up front? With, there's something funny about an even number. No one's in the center. <laughs> you could have five, and then there's a clear middle. But when you have six, there's no middle. There's no center. That's one. Secondly, where was John, the first song? Somewhere back there, hitting the, some toms. Like just his head down. That's how I met John at OREU. was percussion boy, you know? This is John, I think, if I'm, like, to play shrink, this is, this is John, like, saying... This worship leading thing began for me because I just love like helping people worship. So I'm just going to do this. He didn't come out and be like, Ha-ha, "Good morning, everybody." You know, maybe we've done that at parts in parts of our m- maturing process. <laughs> okay, but that's not what happened this morning. Thirdly, it was four songs in before John said a word. You saw a team this morning. Man, that's, that's pretty cool, man. We didn't know who the main leader was. It's like you had, John, you, had, yeah, you had Jonathan lead a song, and then you had Corey, and then you had Anna, and then it was like Gina. And then finally John says, hey, everybody. Oh, oh, hey, he's the worship pastor here. It's interesting, isn't it? Subverting the concert leader, And the two songs that he did lead, Evan, I don't know whose decision this was, but the two songs he did lead, they were backlit. So that you saw just the silhouette. I took a picture of it, which is totally not worshipful and not what you're supposed to do. But I took a picture of it because I was like, I need to use this as an illustration. It was just really cool. They're singing, and it's like, the, 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 he finally starts singing, and they're silhouetted. You can't even really see their faces. Their faces were not on the screens. No iMag. Okay, is iMag evil? No. But is that a way, can we subvert the... Rockstar culture? Yeah, I think we can. I think we can work against it. Is this an anti-technology talk? Absolutely not. Is this an anti-production talk? 100% no. It's about being intentional in the way you use these things. Because sight, sound, the set, everything speaks. Everything speaks. Everything shapes the way that we do the stuff together. And if we want to shape this well, then we've got to do it a little bit differently. Um, One of the thoughts I thought I would say today, and I I had a lot of angst about whether to to do this or not, because the risk of any conference is that there's an implicit presumption that we know what we're talking about, (laughs) okay? And I just want to say, I am a fellow student of this with you. And I've, I've, I've been in the place where I never even thought about it. It was like, Let's do whatever works. It was always pragmatic. Well, if it works. And now I'm trying to be more reflective to say, well, but how is it working? How is it shaping? Okay, so oftentimes people ask during, via an email or when I'm speaking at a conference, whatever, and they're like, hey, can you just tell us how, how, what it looks like? And I'm always nervous about this because I don't think you should all do this. I don't think the answer is to imitate this. That is not the answer. And I will make it clear on my session on Thursday morning, the closing session, that ultimately the Holy Spirit must lead us. We've got to pay attention to our people and our context and our culture and the, and the gifts that are on, on our team and the callings of the people who are leading on the stage. All of that. So we've got to discern. There is no shortcut out of discernment. There's no shortcut around paying attention to that. There, there, there isn't. Nevertheless, <laughs> for the sake of helping you say, okay, so what could be a different way of doing this? Or what could be a way to kind of imagine this? I'll just tell you, wow, you cannot read that, can you? Mm, opening song, opening song, opening song. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, let me just put this on the screen and then you can see it. This is kind of how our, our, our liturgy is downtown. We have a a gathering song. It's probably a better word for it, like a a song one that is a. Uh, you know the guys at Vertical Worship up at uh, James mcdonalds they do a great job kind of outlining it as a template, and they talk about song one as a gathering song. I think that's a good way to say it, a song that, that is like a Psalm 95, you know, come, come and let us worship the Lord, let us sing aloud to the rock of our salvation, gathering song. And then we always do a prayer moment, so Evan's back here, he's one of our associate pastors at New Life Downtown. Evan, a lot of weeks, will come up and do a prayer moment, and he'll say, uh, you know, this week we want to pray for all this, the school teachers as we're getting back to school. Uh, raise your hand if you're a school teacher, you know, and then he'll have someone from the congregation who is a school teacher come up and lead in prayer. Now, that can look a thousand different ways, right? But the point is that there's prayers, the prayers of the people that happen as part of the liturgy. You, those of you who know um, um, more formal liturgies, you'll know where all this comes from, except from, from maybe the greet time. Um, this was an idea that someone gave us. You know, there's, there's normally the obligatory, hey, take a moment, greet the people around you, and you may be seated. And we were totally doing that. And someone said, man, what if you put a clock on the screen and, like, a countdown, and you, and you gave them four minutes? I was like, four minutes is kind of a long time, you know. But we did it. And at first, it's totally awkward, you know, because people are like, oh, hi, hi. And then they're looking at the screen like three minutes and 30 seconds left. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know. Peyton Manning can drive 80 yards against the Seattle defense four more times. Okay, anyway. Um, gosh, we were so close. Anyway. Um, <laughs> um, where am I? Okay, so we put a little clock on. And, and you know what it does for people is it gives them permission to, to do what Brady said this morning, unhurried, Conversations. You slow down a little bit. You can't have a full-length conversation, but you slow down enough to find out something about someone, and then maybe say, "Man, let's have coffee this week." Well, let's, you know, so a chance for people to turn toward one another because so much time in church is spent facing forward. Um, joy time is our offering and announcements. That's a pretty standard uh, element. Scripture readings uh, each week, based on whatever the sermon is. I will pick an Old Testament passage, a New Testament passage, and a Gospel passage. That um, that match that text. So, this last Sunday I was preaching out of Genesis 32, the Jacob wrestling with God story. Had a New Testament text which was First John 3, um, who we are as children of God. Had the uh, Gospel text as John 15, where Jesus says, "I no longer call you servants, but friends." And uh, but I'm choosing them because I know how they're going to work together in the sermon, which is the next piece about 25, 30 minutes if I'm honest, maybe 35, some weeks, okay. Um, then we do follow it up with confession. And this is, um, this, this is one of those pieces where I'm saying it's not for everybody, okay? I'm not saying this, oh, what, this is what we all need. But you will, um, it says silent and corporate, confession, silent and corporate. This is one of those things. Um, on Thursday, I will talk about giving our service a gospel shape. Okay, so every service, and not every service, our services can either be shaped like a variety show or they can be shaped like a story. Okay? The variety show borrows from the cultural liturgy of like the late night David Letterman show, you know, stand up and then segments. Segment, segment, segment. Again, is that inherently evil? No. Does that mean you're going to make everyone go to hell? No, absolutely not. Um, But... Could there be a different way to put the service together? Yeah. And that is to actually tell a story. Now, actually, this is what movies do, right? They take us on a journey in 90 minutes. And actually, the old historic liturgies were designed. Maybe they started doing it in a a way that became disconnected from us, but they were designed to take us on a journey, to, to help us reenact a drama. What is that drama? The drama is the gospel. It was meant to kind of help us rehearse this. And so at some point in the service, there needs to be a moment where we say, Lord, help. Because that's part of the drama of salvation, isn't it? So in the Pentecostal tradition, it's the altar call. Finish the sermon. and if You feel like the Lord is working with you? Come on down front. That's great. That's part of that moment. That's a place for it. Um, for, for us, we've decided to do it as silent confession right after the sermon. So when the sermon's over... Right then and there, so bow your heads, let the spirit move in your heart, let, give, give the Lord some space to bring some things to your attention, and things to think about, you know. And then, then we pray a prayer of confession together. Why? Because we don't always have the right language for what is going on, right? We don't always have the right language, and if you've ever had a public prayer meeting where somebody has said, Father God, Lord, thank you, for, you know, anyway, whatever, you know. We don't always have the language <laughs> to pray, we need to be schooled in this. Not that God doesn't accept our bare bones raw prayer like the sinner who says, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. I think that's great. But I think over time, we need to be more schooled in this language. You know? So we use a set prayer. We use a written prayer of confession that goes like this. Most merciful God Almighty, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. Now, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways, to the glory of your name, amen. That's gorgeous. That's beautiful. How did I, did I set out to memorize? And I don't, I don't, I never stopped, and I've just been saying it every week now for a few years. It's so wonderful when your children start to repeat that. <laughs> You're Like, oh, you know, I've, I'm kind of learning that there's things I have done and there's things I've left undone. They didn't, nobody taught them a fancy theological phrase of the sins of commission and the sins of omission. But they just learned it by praying. See what I'm saying? Okay, so, you get it. So we pray that together. Then there is the peace, which is kind of like an absolution we do this some... Actually, everything that I'm saying to you from sermon on is what we'll do on Thursday morning together in the closing session. We'll, we'll do all of this. The peace I announce as a representative of the gospel, I get, to, I get the joy of announcing to you that God, not I, God has forgiven your sins through Jesus Christ our Lord. Peace be with you. And then I say, now you turn and announce that to one another. Can you imagine? I mean, <laughs> husbands and wives, friends, siblings... Turning to one another and saying, God forgives your sins in Jesus' name. (laughs) 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 But how beautiful it is. I've had people say that that was like the most profound moment. We were fighting all week and we had to look each other in the eye and be like, God forgives your sins in Jesus' name. Peace be with you. (laughs) All of a sudden, we're turning toward one another. Then there's all the stuff we do for communion. I won't go into all of it. Again, we'll do this on Thursday together. Um, we do communion basically. It's the table. There's a few things that, that we say together that's really taken from Anglican uh, liturgy. And then we have a longer worship time. So that's when we do th- four more songs of worship. And we have our prayer ministry team that are there for, uh, for prayer toward the end and all of that. And so, that, again, is that a model liturgy? Not at all. Is that a flawless liturgy? Certainly not. Are we constantly tinkering with it? You bet. <laughs> um, there, I mean, Evan knows there have been times when we tried to put different pieces earlier. We tried to put the greet part lower, and it's just like, ah, oh, that, that did not work. And during, from Advent all the way to Easter, we flip it. We do the longer worship set up top, and then just communion and one or two songs at the end. So again, there's all kinds of things you can, um, you can uh, mess around. But liturgy is not about style, it's about shape. Okay, so you can, this is another one of those things to ponder. Liturgy is not about style, it's about shape. What is the shape of our service? What shape is it taking? How, wh- wh- what story is it telling? Where is this going? It's not about style, it's about shape. On Thursday, and I'm, I'm sorry I keep referring to Thursday or, or Wednesday or whatever, it's because I'm giving four talks this week, and I'm trying to, I had to organize my thoughts in, uh, in different ways, so I put a few in different buckets, because there's really only one talk. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, <laughs> I'm just kidding, but, but, uh, but there's a lot that I want to say about shape um, that I will say on Thursday and how, I, I, I mentioned this in the previous workshop, but how For centuries, the shape of a service had a fourfold shape, from baptism to scripture to prayer to table, and Charles Finney and the Frontier Revivals changed it to a threefold shape, which was warm-up, which the warm-up could be um, um, songs uh, or drama, and then um, preaching sermon, and then a decision moment. So again, am I saying this is evil? Not at all. I'm saying we just changed the shape of Christian worship and mostly in America, because of starting with a relatively blank slate. There's a lot of people who didn't like the old shape of worship in Europe. And so said, well, yeah, let's do this new shape. It really is working for the the awakenings and for the revivals. And so what became good methods for revivals became the standard liturgies for churches. That's how we got to where we are. Maybe a non-denominational pastor doesn't know that's why... He structures church that way. But that's, that's how we got to where we are. Um, whether or not this is good or bad, this is, again, the, the work of discerning with the Spirit. To say, Lord, do we need... Are we... Is there something missing here? Do we need... So, I am not about... My life and, and ministry and this journey for me is not about replacing one thing for another necessarily. It's much more about enriching. It's much more about adding. I think and Christians have always done this, it's operating within a tradition while being enriched from another one. So I operate within a charismatic, evangelical, non-denominational church, but I'm being enriched from an Anglican tradition. Does that make sense? I think that there's wisdom in that. I think there's beauty in that. They're saying, oh, we don't, we're not going to change who we are. This is, this is where we live. But we're going to be enriched from something like this. You know, it's like saying just because you're from the midwest doesn't mean you only eat corn and meat and potatoes like you can try chinese food it's pretty good you know i mean i say this because my my wife like the first time she had chinese food was at college you know now she loves it she loves asian food yes you know um so anyway okay i think that's good